0: Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As you know, on this podcast, we do like to discuss the macro and market views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners, along with considerations when it comes to asset allocation. So joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas. We're also excited to welcome back to the podcast, Joe Zindel of Blackstone. Joe serves as the chief investment strategist for the Private Wealth Solutions Group within Blackstone. So with that, Jason, Joe, it's great to have you both back here on the podcast. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and looking forward to hearing your current thinking.
1: Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me back on. Jason, looking forward to the uh, conversation over the course of the next few minutes. Well, Joe, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, have a lot of talk about the markets.
0: So with that in mind, maybe acknowledging, Joe, how 2023 has delivered some unexpected market-moving events, such as the banking crisis that comes to mind. Can you speak a bit to how that event might have changed your outlook for 2023 heading into the year, as well as that of other regions, such as emerging markets or even mainland Europe?
1: Well, well, thank you. And, you know, Dan, I guess the first thing I would say is um, when you think about the regional bank crisis, we had the run on Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, March 10th. We had the failure of three regional banks. Then, of course, you had Credit Suisse being rolled up to UBS. And, you know, the narrative is that financial conditions would tighten drastically as regional banks pulled back in lending. Uh, But, you know, sometimes you've got to step back. and, 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 of course, with that, the tightening of financial conditions, or you know, regional banks sort of pulling back in lending, you know, that would essentially pull forward Fed hikes, or it would do the Fed's job for it. That was the stuff that we were hearing, sort of like during the regional bank crisis and immediately afterward. And then sometimes you've got to sort of step back and check the facts, right? You've got to sort of think, well, what's actually happened in the market? And and in the in the five weeks since that uh, since the failure of those regional banks, we've actually seen kind of the opposite on the ground, right? Instead of this massive amount of financial tightening, you know, financial conditions should have tightened, we've actually seen risk assets rallying. And and you've seen that, you know, not only in the SP, but you've seen that in, in the NASDAQ. Uh you've seen uh, you know a very popular ETF manager with a very popular ETF of very speculative stocks uh getting the best inflows that this ETF manager's had basically since twenty twenty one. And, and things like cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, absolutely ripping. So the narrative was financial conditions are going to tighten, and the tightening financial conditions are going to do the Fed's job for it. Therefore, the Fed doesn't have to hike as much. But the reality is risk assets have have actually done sort of the exact opposite. It's sort of like we forgot the old lefty-loosey-righty-tighty sort of thing. And, and, and I think... The the tighter spreads, the the equity outperformance, the risk assets like cryptos going parabolic, um, I think that's actually contributed to a form of easing of financial conditions that actually make the Fed's job tougher for it. So my view on the economy hasn't necessarily changed as a result of the regional bank crisis, but what has changed is I think the Fed actually has more work to do still So I kind of take the over as to what is the current consensus uh, when we think about, you know, what Fed policy is going to look like over the course of the next couple months.
0: Thank you, Joe. Yeah, I know we're going to dive a bit deeper into the outlook for monetary policy in just a few moments. Jason Dreho, want to get your macro thoughts as well as far as CIO's outlook for 2023, how that might have evolved as we've been experiencing these unexpected developments such as the banking crisis.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And Joe's comments have alluded to this. we went back to mid-March and thought, well, how is this going to play out? You know, definitely kind of pessimism that, well, suddenly there's going to be a credit crunch, banking issues. Uh, this is making a recession very inevitable. It's just a matter of time before the Fed actually has to maybe start, you know, cutting rates. And slowly but surely, over the past five weeks, you know, some of those uh, certainly most imminent fears have receded. Uh, at the same time, we've gotten data that shows that the U- U.S. economy can to be, you know, quite you know, resilient. You know, moderating but still, uh, you know, holding up quite well. I think the Atlanta Fed tracking estimate for Q1 GDP is back up to about 2.5%. You know, that's above what the Fed wants, you know, which is probably closer to like 1% at this point in time to, to moderate the economy. Uh, at the same time, there's been, you know, positive news by and large on the inflation front. So investors are becoming quite comfortable that inflation is going to come down. Uh, and so maybe the Fed doesn't have to hike more just because, you know, inflation story is, is okay. Uh, so that is, you know, kind of the backdrop. Which, frankly, if you described how the first month of this year went to January, it was a very similar story where, you know, people thought that, you know, we'd get a recession the first half of this year. Um, eventually, you know, the Fed was was close to being done and things would get better from, uh, from here on in. And then you had the markets kind of rally throughout uh, January on the expectations or, or kind of growing evidence, well, maybe we can get a soft land. And that's sort of what it feels like we've had right here. But if we go back to what happened in, in February and March, you know, the market started to reprice and the Fed going ultimately higher at some point right before Silicon Valley Bank went under, you know, the market was expecting up four more rate hikes. Uh and so we probably won't get four more rate hikes at this point. But there is and I would agree with Joe that, you know, the the view that the the Fed is is you know, done or almost done and then we'll start cutting. I think that that's slowly starting to be challenged by uh, the markets. So I think we're kind of in agreement there. But Joe, an uh, you know, interesting, you know, point you made is you know, with the equity markets up, with risk assets up, you know, financial conditions are actually eased by some metrics over the past month. But after the banking crisis, you know, be kind of began, there's some thought, well, maybe those kind of, some of these measures of financial conditions that are based on market prices or market prices of, of different asset classes are not the appropriate or full way to think about it because other credits, you know, just in terms of how much access the companies would have to, to capital will get constrained. Uh, and, and therefore, the Fed could do less. So when you think about Financial conditions. Do you think some of those market based measures are kind of inaccurate? Um, You know, and if that's the case, maybe the Fed will rely on, you know, conventional tightening of credit. uh, You know, or do you think that's just tightening of credit may not really materialize after all? And therefore, the Fed is still going to have to do maybe three hikes back, what they were kind of suggesting, you know, on March 8th before the,
1: the whole banking crisis began. Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting question, Jason, about, you know, whether or not it is truly an easing of financial conditions or if it's just sort of asset price inflation. And and I think all of us, um, you know, sort of very clearly understand the the relationship between, you know, the Fed's balance sheet, quantitative easing, and and rising asset prices, right? That was essentially, you know, sort of the last 12 or 13 years, right, starting in 2009 through... Um, you know January of, of last year you know it was about lower interest rates and, and bigger central bank balance sheets and that drove you know asset price inflation if you will right it drove beta uh, and 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 it was essentially you know created sort of like the, the perfect conditions for for, for, for beta um, and so I think over the last five weeks we've seen this asset price inflation come back into the markets and and you know it's probably not a coincidence that the Fed increased its balance sheet by $775 billion, you know, virtually overnight or, you know, in a really short, in a really short period of time. Um, and, and I think people pulled out the very familiar playbook of bigger central bank balance sheets, higher asset prices. Um, so is this really just asset price inflation or does it represent a true easing of financial conditions. And I guess here, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more torn, and maybe we need to sort of understand some of the data a little bit more. But in my opinion, when risk assets are rallying, interest rates are coming down, and, 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 and credit spreads, you know, had sort of widened out, but then narrowed a little bit more, it's creating windows for things like the loan markets, or, or, or for lending, I should say, where we've seen the loan markets firming up, uh, IPO markets where there were some, some, some IPOs and some liquidity through the public markets. And, and so in, in my opinion, it's kind of like a non-QE QE right now where the Fed's balance sheet went up and, and risk assets have rallied, but it's also created some, some liquidity out there. And I think that liquidity, in my opinion, uh, represents some, some form of easing. So I, I, I do think there's probably a, a mix in, in, in both. But I would say more broadly, it is counterproductive to what the Fed needs to do. And, and you know, you mentioned, Jason, in inflation, and I'm sure we're going to cover it. But, but if I could just kind of throw in a little bit of perspective from our own portfolio companies, I think you know, for, for folks here, if they're not fully familiar, Blackstone is the world's largest alternatives asset manager. Um, we're the largest private equity owner in the world. We're the largest uh, real estate owner in the world. We're the lar- among the largest non-bank lenders in the world, et cetera. And I think one of the things really unique to my, my my role here as chief investment strategist is that we're able to pull all the data from our underlying businesses to understand how our CEOs uh, are seeing the world, right, from from their perspective. And um, we saw, we see things like our portfolio companies' input prices falling, right? So we see that in terms of our group purchasing on commodities. We're one of the largest group purchasers out there. We purchase over $3 billion a year through competitive auctions for our portfolio companies of commodities and, 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 and goods. And we've seen those prices declining, or I should say the inflation rate of those sort of categories, Really declining. The input prices across our portfolio companies have fallen to about two percent from five to six percent last uh, this time last year. But where we haven't seen the weakening much is wages, and in our wage growth has slowed a little bit. But but this year our portfolio companies collectively, I want to say collectively, it's 260 portfolio companies today that employ collectively 700,000 people. Across every single industry imaginable in the United States, collectively they're going to take their wages up by about 5.6 percent this year. That same cohort of companies would have wage gains more like two and a quarter to two and a half percent on a pre-COVID basis. So there's parts of the inflation fight that I think are still in front of us, and, and, and so I think that, plus the sort of risk assets, it does definitely complicate things for the Fed.
2: So a lot of things that I kind of want to follow up on uh, and ultimately kind of lean back kind of to to, to the Fed and, you know, how much, you know, balance sheet QE, non-QE might be kind of driving things. But just on this inflation point, it's it's interesting because, you know, we talk to a lot of business owners, there are clients, uh, and even starting late last year, I was surprised how often the feedback I get is they were more worried about disinflation than they were worried about inflation because they could see input costs in some cases falling or their ability to maybe kind of pass along costs declining. Uh, so that's sort of what you said, sort of reinforces that point. But the, the part on the wages is also interesting because if we look at some of the most recent data, uh, for example, in the, the March uh, payroll report, average hourly earnings year over year fell to 4.2%. But if you take the Q1 numbers, uh, they and you annualize it just in the first quarter, it came out to three and a quarter, which by historical standards, I think that's bang in line with what the Fed would need to see to get the two percent inflation. Last Friday, you know, a few days after we got that data, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, you know, I mean, it was updated, and it goes from 6.1 percent to 6.4. And the one thing about the Atlanta Fed tracker is that they try to control for kind of composition changes in the, in the labor force, so it's a kind of a like-for-like like in terms of the jobs. Whereas average hourly earnings could be distorted because well, all the job growth was people making, you know, lower salaries and lower wage increases, as opposed to like high-income workers maybe didn't get the jobs, so they could be distorted by that composition. The Atlanta Fed tracker, you know, kind of controls for that. So when I looked at the overall story, to me it was like kind of a mixed bag with which going on on wages.
1: That's how the- yeah, and, and the- actually, you the- Jason, if I could hop in there for a second. Yeah, yeah. That is exactly the thought process that we have internally as well about, you know, the idea that average hourly earnings is kind of distorted because, you know, you're not hiring the same number of tech workers that you ordinarily would right now, but you are adding more in the services when we track our data, we're tracking actual jobs among our 700,000 portfolio company employees. So what we're tracking internally is, resembles the Atlanta Fed wage tracker much more than it resembles average hourly earnings. So the types of wage pressure that we're seeing is much more like the like-for-like uh, the, the like because we're looking at our actual employees across our portfolio companies – And we're incorporating instances of bonuses, mid-year salary adjustments, and some of these other things. So there's a combination, not to get overly wonky for this audience, but there's a combination of like an ECI, an employee cost index, which includes bonuses, signing bonuses and things like that. But then there's also an element of what the Atlanta Fed does where we're tracking actual jobs. And so I think our wage data ends up being sort of a slightly different view, but it's one that like, I find to be fascinating because we can really control for things like the averages. Uh, someone once said to me, you could put one hand in the freezer and the other hand in the oven, and on average, your hands are room temperature. And so when I think about average hourly earnings, that's kind of what I think about. Uh, so we, we, we try to control for that as well.
2: Uh, that's an experiment that I'll let you do Joe, not myself. Um, <laughs> but, but it, so just kind of building on that, have you seen the like some moderation, uh, in, in that sort of, you know, the trend over the past year, you know, with month to month volatility, and then if you didn't think about, you know, where inflation could go, so we're getting disinflation or low inflation, say, on the good side, which we see kind of a broader the, part of the economy, but some thought and concern, it would be that if, if wages don't moderate, then it kind of puts a floor on how far inflation can go, and the only way that you can get that lower is ultimately if you cause a more significant economic kind of, you pain, ultimately a recession if you're the Fed. So given the historical data that you can look at, you feel like the trend is lower, and, and, and how much maybe will that impact ultimately kind of the path to inflation that the company's charged? like. You know, if you know if wages are six percent, but like you know, you know, it's four percent productivity, and, and therefore they raise prices two percent. That's the ideal. That's probably not going to happen. So how do you see this? You know, where things stand, where's the trend, where might it
1: ultimately kind of end up? Yeah, I think it, I, I think it plays out in a. You know, I, I think it's going to be really interesting um, the way the, the way this plays out because I I, I think um, as we look at our data, we found really early on that the inflationary pressures were much more persistent and much less transitory and i'll just give you a couple of examples you mentioned goods and there's a tremendous amount of goods deflation in the in the system right now and and we saw this kind of working its way through the snake so to speak right sort of like the snake that eats the whatever the rabbit or something or i don't know what snakes eat actually maybe it is something other who knows whatever but like we started to see this in our ports when our ports started to clear and then as the ports cleared, you know, we got all the backlogs down to zero. Um, uh, February of last year, uh, February of 2022, we peaked with 109 ships at backlog at what's called at birth or at anchorage outside of the Long Beach port complex. So we own that 42-mile stretch of land from L.A. to Long Beach called the San Pedro Port Complex. Um, we kind of waved to all the ships and said, hey, guys, go take a left, go to the Panama Canal, take another left. And, uh, go up to the port of Newark, ports of Newark and, and New York. So we rerouted the ships over to the East Coast. That didn't go very well. That was actually much worse if you've ever had to think about the drive from like, you know, from, from Newark to Chicago, which is kind of what the main trucking route. But we started to see the goods then hit our warehouses. And, and we're the world's largest private logistics owner. So we're the world's largest owner of last mile logistics, urban infill logistics. These are urban infill warehouses close to population clusters, right? And our warehouses were 98.3% occupied at their peak. They were so full that we started renting out the periphery of our parking lots for a completely new category, completely new revenue uh, line called outdoor storage. We literally were ship parking or stacking shipping containers in the parking lots. By September, that had started to clear out, and that was the surest sign that goods deflation was coming. And then, of course, we saw it in our multifamily apartments and or, plus single-family homes. So we own two hundred seventy thousand multifamily apartments and another thirty thousand single-family homes. A year ago, so call it April of twenty twenty-two, our rent rolls were like plus fifteen to plus seventeen percent, and then they peaked in June, and that. And, and started to, to decline, that sends a signal that shelter is working its way through the system. Interestingly, what we're seeing now, just if we focus on shelter for a second, because it's over a third of the CPI basket, what we're seeing now in our apartments is prices actually started to pick up a little bit more, and we're now, our new leases, or our what we call our rent rolls, are coming in at, like say, plus 5%, and that's actually firmed up a little bit. So if you get a little bit of a bid to housing, and let's just say our rent data stabilizes at plus 5%, every other category of CPI basically has to go to zero to hit that Fed target. So I think that there, I I, I think this is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out because all the easy to solve parts of inflation were supposed to go away. But yet we've seen a bid back in oil prices, some commodities heating up again, and now you've actually started to get a little bit of firming in the housing data. And remember, this is stuff that was all supposed to go away. But maybe maybe it remains a little bit higher and a little bit more volatile than people are sort of expecting. And I think that could be one of the surprises.
2: Well, there's certainly, I would call it complacency in the market about inflation. It seems like... That the, you know, investor base, like the broader market is assuming inflation is going to continue to fall, you know, steadily, you know, not necessarily like in a, a smooth pattern, but like it, it's, it's trending lower. And in some way, it was 2022's problem. High inflation, it's coming down. It will continue to come down. This year's concern is, is growth. And you can see it in just in like the dynamics of the markets where, you know, very recently we looked at sort of correlations between the S&P 500 returns on a daily basis and those of U.S. government bonds and treasuries. And for much of last year, it was positive. Which was bad for like you know kind of you know conventional stock bond portfolios because everything was selling off, but that correlation, if you measured over the last 30 days, has gone from positive to sharply negative around minus 0.6, which is a level that it had been at you know kind of pre-pandemic, kind of what people got used to in terms of the diversification. So to me, that's a bit of a signal that people think inflation's not a concern; it's all about growth. And I'm I'm kind of with you that when I look at some of the numbers, I look at, at the wage data you're talking about. Like, yeah, it's maybe kind of getting better, but not as much as people assume. You know, I've seen similar you know, data on the shelter that like, there's, yes, there's some disinflation to work through, but maybe it's going to, you know, not be quite as much as people think. All of which then kind of brings us back to the Fed. And, you know, there's an interesting element where I think the market believes and is expecting like maybe one more hike and then if you look at pricing some cuts later this year. Your point about QE not being QE, that's helping lift the markets. I'm I've always been a little more skeptical of just how much you know, liquidity really is driving asset prices, or is it just the fact that the Fed is willing to be in a accommodative stance that alone provides kind of a, a support to the markets? And it, it did seem like the moment the Fed came in dealing with the banking crisis in mid, uh, mid-March, they've gone from, like, purely inflation-fighting mode and there's no Fed put to, like, well, clearly they don't want the stress to get so bad. They're willing to kind of do what is necessary. And, and whether it's cutting the rates or expanding balance sheets, you know, there's a bit of a
1: you know, pivot in the markets, and that's going kind to of help more the markets recently. But if that's stabilized. I could if I could hop into the question, maybe go off script a little bit. Um do you think the talk of the death of the Fed put was uh exaggerated? I think
2: the Fed put exists when people were you know, when inflation isn't a problem and there's growth concerns. And when growth is fine and the labor market, think about of last year, has grown by four million, they have a dual mandate of full employment and price stability, check off full employment so they can focus a hundred percent on price stability, which means they have to keep hiking to bring that down. As inflation comes down, it becomes less of a problem. And if if there is issues in the labor market, and you actually start to see negative payroll growth, well, then they have to kind of flip back. And I think that that put comes back. But it really depends on like how those two things can balance. Last year, it was just pure focus on on price stability. So it, to me, it's a little bit of and now if you have the financial stability concerns, that's another reason for them to provide some some support to the markets. So it's all conditional on. Of the things that they have to focus on, which is the priority? And is it only that
1: priority, or is it kind of trying to balance all of them? And I think the the, the interesting thing is um, a year ago, I think everybody would have agreed that either the Fed put was over or at least it struck, quote, unquote, a lot lower. Uh, But then I think we saw in in early March with the regional banks that that maybe that that Fed put is uh, closer to at the money than we we thought, Um, which is a really interesting sort of idea because you mentioned the Fed's dual mandate of full employment and price stability. Financial market stability, I guess, is really never that far behind. Uh, I don't know if that should be the basis for investment decisions, but uh, just an interesting sort of observation, um, especially as you've seen money flowing back into kind of risk assets. Um, and and I, I think that's it, it invites the question of, is that how you want to be positioned for the next cycle? Or is that merely just a, a sort of trade, if you will? Because um, I think the next cycle is probably going to look a lot different than the last cycle um, because I think the things that you had mentioned, the you know, things we're talking about here today, which is shelter um, and, and commodities and, and certainly tight labor markets, I think on the other side of this, those shortages could very quickly translate back into inflationary pressures. Right. Today's shortages are in housing, energy, energy transition, commodities, supply chains are underinvested as we, as we realize during COVID how fragile they are, and of course we have a shortage of labor. And it's not clear to me how any of those get resolved over the course of this next you know, recession right? Let's, or growth slowdown, which means I think when we get to the other side and someone at the Wall Street Journal writes that story about the green shoots, you know, like we saw in 2009 – Um, I think when that confidence comes back into the economy, we could very quickly find ourselves, again, bumping up against capacity because of an undersupply of housing and underinvestment in commodities and things like that. And I think that inflation could come back more quickly, which probably takes off the table zero rates and bigger central bank balance sheets of the last cycle. So I think that means the next cycle could end up being a lot different. So be curious the- to get your reaction to that.
0: Oh, go ahead, Jason.
1: You no, know, Alec,
2: I I agree with uh, with a lot of what you said. That um, yeah, the the past decade is you know is unique time period. It's probably not going to be replicated, uh, and we'll look back, I think, with longer historical context to realize, in some ways, we had a massive global sort of debt kind of bubble bursting. We know historically that it can take five, six, seven years for that; those balance sheets to be cleaned up. That takes us to 2015-16, and, and then things start to kind of start to recover from there. And I think if you look at the data, you can sort of see that. You know, we'll never know the reality, like, had we not had the pandemic, well, where would things have gone? Because we were already in year 11 of expansion in the U.S., record long, could have continued. But... Um, and would we sort of end up kind of where we are today or as we've structurally changed? But I think where there's clearly some, some elements that are, have changed because of the developments of the past few years that will lead to, you know, probably higher inflation, you know, at least, you know, marginally, I'm not talking like 4%, 5%, but we struggle to ever get up to 2%. I think we'll be struggle to probably get below 2%. So unless the Fed really makes a bad mistake and, and overhikes and causes a deep recession and we kind of go back to where we were before, but I don't think that's, at least I wouldn't make that my base case. Uh, and you can construct a number of reasons why from. Um Deglobalization to some extent to reinforcing supply chains to frankly a lack of investment in commodities over the past you know six or seven years that's going to mean commodity prices are biased towards going higher you know not lower all of which would suggest that uh, you know inflation will be on the stickier side but you you made a comment like then therefore the investing component of this is different in that environment versus kind of you know where we were uh, and I know we we don't have that much time so I just given all this there's a long term view but even more in the short term view, your comments about digging the fed's you know, the risk is that they do more than the market's expecting. So, how do you then think this kind of plays out, maybe through the rest of the year for kind of broad markets, and you can tie in private markets, and then, you know, then maybe we can touch on a little bit, like kind of on a three or five year view, how you're sort of thinking about things.
1: Yeah, I would say I would say really quickly. Um, I think pivot is uh, the Fed pivot is off the table for for 2023. So uh, I don't see them being in a position to cut rates. Um, or if they do cut rates it's because something really bad has happened I think the market is pricing fed cuts but not necessarily why the Fed might cut uh, which is which I think creates a, a kind of a, a, a volatile environment so so I, 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 my view is that the Fed is not a position to pivot. I think we do get more volatility in the markets. And then in terms of positioning, you know, we look at the volatility as a, as, for us as an as a opportunity to provide scarce capital, right? Now, you know, Finance 101 will tell you you're in your highest rate of return where capital is scarce. And where we've seen, you know, um, uh, for instance, in private lending, uh, what we're able to do in private credit right now is we're able to provide capital uh, and earn equity-like returns while being very senior, in the, while being the most senior in the capital structure. So it's sort of like equity-like returns, but you're 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 at the top of the capital structure in case something goes wrong, and that ends up being enormously appealing as we think about the need to fund energy transition and to fund supply chains. You know, if you think about moving supply chains from China to Mexico, that's a five to ten-year type investment that needs to be financed, and we can do a lot of that through private credit, uh, which is hugely interesting. Uh, and then just generally, across our businesses, we're thinking about cash flow. In other words, duration management. What are the assets across all of our private businesses that we can buy that can provide cash flow and grow that cash flow as one of the most natural hedges against the inflationary and interest rate volatility? So you're coming about kind of providing liquidity in sort of an environment that, that's kind of starved. its You know, that's one
2: of the advantages like you know, for investors who can be kind of long-term focused. But if you're sitting on cash in this environment, it might seem tempting to sort of ride it out but, you know, people often um, you know, kind of overpay for liquidity. Like, you know, in the public markets, there tends to be sort of a bit of a liquidity, that kind of premium. But at the same time, if you can be a liquidity provider in those times of sort of market stress, that's when you can often get the best kind of, you know, returns. I think, you know, one of the consequences of the Fed, I think, to me, ultimately kind of raising rates, uh, is it's not so much impact. I mean, it is impacting like the 10-year, but I think just the fact that, you know, just general savers can say, like, well, I can put my money in money market funds and get five or plus percent. You want to sit on the sidelines. It feels like slowly but surely the economy is going to be squeezed of capital. You know, if you're willing to kind of go on the markets and invest, especially certain areas, that's when, when it's kind of, you know, you can probably get some of your best returns. So I think it's, that's an interesting kind of point that is often not a fully appreciated in these types of environments where the, it's tempting to kind of be on the sidelines as opposed to realizing, you know, there's some really attractive opportunities right now.
0: On the private market side of things, just an understanding of how 2022 was a, a tough year for more conventional investment stocks and bonds, yet considering at the same time you do have concerns out there about risks within private markets, in consideration of the banking crisis, which we touched on a bit earlier in the conversation, Joe, how you're thinking about private markets at the moment and where you might see the best opportunities out there for more longer-term investors.
1: Yeah, great, great, great. Thank you for that. Um, and you know, the first thing I'd say is I want to build on a point Jason made about um, you know sitting on the cash and sidelines. And I think there's a Goldman Sachs analyst who wrote a report a month ago. It's probably the best title ever, uh, and it was uh, "T Bill and Chill," um, and, uh, and 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 it totally gets my award for like most creative best headline ever. But it's probably not the right answer for the following reason: no one ever rings a bell an all clear signal or provides an all clear signal at the bottom. Right? There's there's no bell like you hear like at the New York Stock Exchange every day that announces the beginning of trading. There's no all clear signal at the bottom. And and so I think while the idea of you know the T bill and chill is tempting, um, there's an opportunity cost. And the opportunity cost is to be a provider of scarce capital. And so if you think about um so so what we're doing across our, our businesses and private markets is you know we're 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 sort of acknowledging that you get your earn re- your returns one of two ways either through multiple expansion or through profits and the era of multiple expansion is over in our view so for us it's about profits so we're looking at the high quality businesses with high quality balance sheets that are producing and growing their free cash flow and it's an enormously attractive area for us uh, we've been engaged in a num- number of take privates because the public markets have been quicker to adjust. To take privates, meaning we can buy a public company, we can bring it, we take it private, and we can establish these toehold positions uh, in companies, uh, you know, up to five percent without disclosures. Then, using swaps to get to another five percent to have a ten percent stake in a company in order to get access to its financials, and then in order to facilitate a take private. Uh, so that's a really interesting area for us. We've been engaged in corporate carveouts, um, which is a really interesting area. Uh, but just more generally, it's been about high quality cash flows. Uh, we're doing that through logistics in private real estate. We are quickly becoming one of the largest data center owners in the world. Uh, and I think the data centers will be as meaningful as the logistics for us in our, in our, our real estate portfolio. And by the way, on data centers, the need for data is only going up, especially with generative AI. Uh, I'm on ChatGPT version 4 all the time. It writes at about the level of an 8th or ninth grader. So by my own informal calculations, I'll be obsolete in about two weeks. Uh, But it requires an enormous amount of storage capacity. So I think the data centers are one for us that are going to be very, very quickly become a really big secular theme and a big part of our portfolio. So those are a couple things I'd mention there. And I'll, I'll stop there.
2: Yeah, as I was saying, Joe, don't worry that um, I'm not willing to do a, a conversation with Chat GPT anytime soon, so you'll you'll be invited back uh, no matter what. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, and also, if you if you are having a contest for the title of best reports, my submission for my own benefit would be a, a, something I did in 2013 when there was a lot of talk about the Fed tapering. Uh, I titled a note, Tinker Taper Bubble Spy, which was my kind of high watermark. I think I got more compliments for that one than anything else. A little esoteric, I <laughs> terrific. I like that one, too.
0: There's a lot much else we can talk about and expand on these points, and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. But I do want to thank uh, Joe Zindel, Jason Dreho. Thank you both again for joining us here on How Should I Be Positioned? And we do look forward to picking back up with the conversation at some point. So uh, th- thank you both again for joining us today. Thank
1: you for the time. Thank you, Dan. And thanks, Jill for,
2: for a great conversation.